Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 21st, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we're going to present part 36 of our series on the Protocols of Satan, and this is subtitled Judaism and Bolshevism. It's really a continuation of what we had presented last week. All throughout this series on the Protocols of Satan, we have been asserting the fact that Bolshevism is a product of Judaism. So this evening we are further quantifying that assertion, merely so that there is sufficient documentation incorporated into this series on the Protocols even though we have presented much of this in different ways at various times in the past. For example, there is a lengthy series wherein we had presented the entire Russian number one report with commentary, and that is still available at our Mein Kampf Project website. So as part of our documentation of the connections between Judaism and Bolshevism, we shall present several other reports from Russia number one this evening. Last week we had presented the report from the Netherlands minister Udendijk, Udendijk maybe, or Udendijk, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, O-U-D-E-N-D-Y-K, I'll call him Udendijk. And this, this evening we have several other reports, even though we're going to present a booklet that is also going to discuss Udendijk's report on the Bolshevik Revolution and the Jewish nature of it. So, the first thing we will present tonight is a booklet on this topic from a source which may be considered quite conventional. Except that today, if most people in the West heard Christians criticize Jews openly, they would, of course, be shocked and appalled. We had mentioned a publication called the Catholic Herald. Several times in Part 20 of this series, which was titled The Jewish Peril and the Catholic Church, there we also mentioned other Catholic figures and publications in Britain which were attempting to bring awareness to the ongoing Jewish treachery against Christendom which at that time was effaced by communism. In the last segment of this series titled The Protocols of Satan Part 35 Inciting Class Warfare we discussed the enmity between the economic classes which the writers of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion had boasted of planning to incite. Then we discussed several passages from the Communist Manifesto, which is actually a long dissertation expressing that same aspiration, along with the revelation of other plans of the Jews to undermine Western society, such as the liberation of women from their traditional family roles, so that they could be made into objects of sexual gratification available to all bidders. And, hand in hand with that, the general destruction 
of the traditional Western family itself. Here we also have other evidence documenting the advancement of this agenda under the Bolsheviks in the Russia number one with report. Finally, as a digression, we offered examples from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, whereby we hope to demonstrate that National Socialism was actually antithetical to Marxism, diametrically opposite of Marxism, and that National Socialism was absolutely compatible with Christian values, while Marxism was the enemy of Christian values. For example, we demonstrated that National Socialism recognized the inevitable necessities of class distinctions and defended property rights, while Marxism professed an intent to eliminate even the concept of private property. But we also supplied documentation that under the Jewish implementation of socialism or communism, as even Marx had called his profession, under the Jewish implementation of communism in Russia, all property rights were denied to others, while Jews had come to hold all of the property. So, in reality, communism was only an avenue by which the Jews sought to realize the professions made in their Talmud that they should own everything and hold all other peoples as slaves. Now, to continue our presentation of the evidence linking Judaism and Bolshevism, we will begin by presenting the following booklet, which was compiled and reprinted from a series of articles, which appeared in a publication called The Catholic Herald in 1933. Judaism and Bolshevism Some Facts Concerning Bolshevism, Judaism, Christianity, and International Jew-Controlled Finance, Bolshevism, and Zionism. And this booklet was put together by an obscure person whose first name I couldn't even find. This is A, that's his first initial, A. Homer. And he purports to have a list of degrees a Doctor of Science, a Master of Arts, and, and other degrees. This article, he says, which appeared in installments in the issues of the Catholic Herald of the 21st and 28th of October and the 4th of November, 1933, was written in reply to a challenge issued by Mr. L. F. Heidelman, ostensibly some Jew. It was reprinted in a pamphlet form in response to a widespread demand for this information, which had been collated from authoritative sources, both Jew and Gentile, to demonstrate the relation between Judaism and Bolshevism and the alliance between international finance and its protégés, 
Bolshevism and Zionism. The editor of the Catholic Herald, according to Mr. Homer, repeatedly reserved space for Mr. Heidelman to reply, but so far as has been ascertained, neither Mr. Heidelman nor any responsible member of Jewry has publicly denied or disproved these statements of fact. Our edition of this booklet, which is in facsimile form on our Mein Kampf Project website, is marked Fifth Impression, so it's at least the fifth printing, I'm sure. And it says once again that it's reprinted from three different issues of the Catholic Herald from October and November of 1933. Judaism and Bolshevism, a challenge and a reply, and under the subtitle, Some Facts. At a meeting held at St. Joseph's Hall, Hanwell, in July last, July 1932, or perhaps, I'm sorry, July of that same year, July 1933, to protest against the Bolshevik persecution of Christianity. The speakers, inter alia, enlightened their audience as to the part played by certain sections of Jewry in the establishment by terrorist methods of the Bolshevist system of government, which is avowedly anti-God, and in its efforts to destroy the present social system of the world, is determined to stamp out Christianity, which is also the Jewish motivation in the West, although they have used absolutely different tactics to accomplish it. Mr. L.J. Heidelman, in letters written to the editor of the Catholic Herald, has taken exception to the statements made, by myself in particular, at the meeting. To him, and perhaps to many others who are unaware of the facts, Bolshevism and Judaism would appear to be contradictions in terms. The association of capitalistic Jewry with anti-capitalist Bolshevism would seem to be absurd and the use of Bolshevism, Zionism, and international finance, the money power, by a small and powerful section of world Jewry, as a means of gaining world domination, are to be classed as, quote-unquote, somewhat wild conclusions. So, continuing under the subtitle, The Jews and Bolshevism, Mr. Homer states that Bolshevism, is a Jewish conception based on the teachings of Karl Marx and other revolutionary socialists. It is characterized by destruction and chaos and imposes its will and maintains its power by terrorism and murder. Bolshevism is above all anti-Christian and anti-social. For until the existing order has been destroyed, the so-called dictatorship of the proletariat in a universal brotherhood of nations cannot be imposed upon the world. There are many who would keep the public in ignorance of the part played by Jews, whether socialists, communists, Zionists, or financiers. 
in the events which have led to the destruction of Tsardom, to the enslavement of the Russian people by terrorism, and to the imposition of the Jewish-controlled Bolshevik regime, to the post-war Red Revolutions in Europe and Asia, to the economic and industrial war on capitalistic states conducted under the Five-Year Plan, to the unchecked persecution of Christians by Bolshevists in Russia, Spain, Mexico, and elsewhere, and to the rapid spread of Bolshevik activities throughout the world, in particular in Palestine, the Middle East, India, and China. This sounds more like the 1950s or 60s, but it was actually 1933, and it's all true. Within the limits of a short article, it is only possible to give a fraction of the overwhelming amount of evidence from authoritative sources, both Gentile and Jew, in support of these facts. The following instances, however, should serve to convince your readers, the readers of the Catholic Herald, that Bolshevism and Zionism are but a means to an end. Weapons in the fight by a Jewish world power for supremacy in politics, economics, and religion, that is, the fight for Jewish nationalism, posing as internationalism, against Gentile nationalism. And we must say that the last 80 years, 85 years, have vindicated this author 100%. Here we must interject that the writer does not refer to Jewish nationalism in the sense that Jews want to live in their own geographic nation under their own customs but Jewish nationalism in a sense that Jews want to be the dominant force in all other nations everywhere, which is also the objective of the Talmud. If Jews really wanted to live under their own customs in their own geographic nation, they have had that opportunity now for 70 years since 1948 and the vast majority of them have failed to take advantage of it as they continue to meddle in the affairs of all other nations. Continuing with Mr. Homer under the subtitle, Bolshevism attributed to Jews. Bolshevism officially attributed to Jews, I'm sorry. The British government published a white paper, Russia No. 1, April 1919, in which was contained a report from M. Udendijk, the Netherlands minister at St. Petersburg, <coughs> who was watching British interests during the Bolshevik Revolution. M. Udendijk, that M might simply stand for Monsieur, M. or Mr. Mr. Udendijk states, I consider that the immediate suppression of Bolshevism is the greatest issue now before the world, not even excluding the war which is still raging, and unless, as above stated, Bolshevism is nipped in the bud immediately, it is bound to spread in one form or another over Europe and the whole world, 
as it is organized and worked by Jews who have no nationality and whose one object is to destroy for their own ends the existing order of things. This report dated September 6, 1918 was forwarded by Sir M. Findlay from Christianita, Christiana, Christiania, I'm sorry, to Mr. or later Lord Balfour. He was Mr. Balfour in 1918. Incidentally, the above passage was deleted from a subsequent abridged edition of the said white paper. Now, in another facsimile, facsimile booklet available at our Mein Kampf project titled Bolshevism is Jewish and written by Arnold Lees and first published the same year in 1933 this same report from Russian number one is reproduced in part this is only part of the original report there Lees wrote under the subtitle the conspiracy of silence and he said a British government white paper entitled Russia number one a collection of reports on Bolshevism in Russia was published in April 1919 this contained a report from M Udendijk the Netherlands minister at Petrograd, Petrograd during the Bolshevik Revolution this report was dated September 6th 1918 and was sent by M. Udendijk to our minister in Norway, Sir M. Findlay, who passed it on to Mr. Balfour. The report contained these words. Then, after quoting the same text which we have just seen above, Lees wrote in response, So the Foreign Office knew in 1918 that Bolshevism is Jewish. M. Udendijk, at the time of writing his report, was acting officially for the protection of British interests, as our own man had been murdered by the Bolsheviks. But that is not the whole story. There is more. This white paper speedily became unobtainable, and an abridged edition was issued in which the passage above quoted, but very little else, was eliminated from the Netherlands minister's report. Least later announced the availability of reproductions of the original Russian number one, although that was in 1933. We have a facsimile version and text reproductions of the original Russian number one report available at our Mein Kampf project. Our own reproduction consists of high resolution scans of an original copy of the original report. Other reports contained within Russian number one make the connection between Jews and Bolshevism. We have also done the same for a corresponding American report which we shall cite later on in this presentation. A report found within the United States government reports on Bolshevism also makes the same connection between Jews and Bolshevism. And to demonstrate the truth behind Arnold Lees's claim of a conspiracy of silence is the fact that the first official British report on Bolshevism, published in 1919, was never available on the internet 
until we were able to post it there in 2010. And the first official American government report on Bolshevism, also published in 1919, was never available on the Internet until we were able to post it there in 2011. So the conspiracy of silence is ongoing because if true history was taught in our universities, there should never have been any need for our Mein Kampf project in the first place. I'm not boasting. I'm only stating facts. Now, to continue with Mr. Homer's booklet and the articles from the Catholic Herald, the following facts demonstrate the part played by Jewry in the furtherance of Bolshevist activities. The hostility of both capitalistic and socialistic Jews to the czarist regime is a matter of history according to their own claims in a publication titled The Maccabean published in New York in 1905 the Jews were the most active revolutionaries in the Tsar's empire the Jewish banker the late Jacob Schiff of the powerful banking group Kuhn Lobin Company aided Russian revolutionaries. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia of 1925, Jacob Schiff financed Japan against Russia in the War of 1904-1905. Item 2, or Argument 2, Jews engineered the Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917. From statements made by Sokolov, the Zenist leader in his book, The History of Zenism, and by other Jews, it is apparent that organized Zenism played an important part in Bolshevik activities in Russia. The success of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution was made possible by the financial support and influence of international Jew financiers and he is referring us to the Sisson report published by the American Committee of Public Information in 1919. I couldn't locate that. And an article from the Times, ostensibly the Times of London, February 9th, 1918. Argument number three. Statesmen representing the Allies in 1919 endeavored to secure the recognition and representation of the Bolshevik government at the peace conference at Versailles. And he states, Wickham Steed, editor of the Times, at the period of which he wrote in his book, through 30 years, stated regarding this move, the prime movers were Jacob Schiff, Warburg, and other international financiers who wished above all, to bolster up the Jewish Bolshevists in order to secure a field for German and Jewish exploitation of Russia. Now, with this we must contend to some degree. First, most of these writers are Englishmen, and naturally Anglophiles, who saw Germany as a distrusted competitor to the vaunted British Empire so they are naturally going to be biased against Germany. But more importantly, many of the communist Jews and their fellow conspirators 
had used German surnames and obscuring their Jewish origins may have appeared to be German, but they were certainly not German. By this, Jews continue to deceive true Europeans to this very day, posing as white Europeans and spreading their diseases throughout white society. Continuing with Mr. Homer, his fourth argument, international finance, which is Jew-dominated, found abundant credits for the five-year plan. Krasin served as one of the post-war links between Jewish and other finance and the Bolsheviks. The intrigues by which finance credits, financial credits, apparently made to Germany reached Russia had been denounced in the USA, in the Congress and elsewhere. The statements have not been refuted by the German-American Jew bankers thus implicated. And we will concede that there was certainly at least some degree of collusion between Germany and the Bolshevik revolutionaries. But we must understand that Russia was an enemy to Germany at this very time as Germany was still fighting a war on several fronts against Russia, Britain, France, Italy, and America, and others. So it certainly would have been in Germany's interest to see the Tsar toppled and the war on the Russian front come to an end. The Western nations were all being used as unwitting dupes in their own downfall by Jews in positions of power in each one of them. Continuing with Mr. Homer, that there is, and his fifth argument, that there is some alliance between the Bolshevik leaders, the avowed enemies of capitalism and the world's supercapitalists, must be inferred from the fact that Felix Warburg in 1927 was given a royal welcome to Russia in spite of his association with the Federal Reserve Bank of America and with the banking group of Kuhn, Loeb and Company. Now, note that this was six years before the official recognition of the Soviet Union by the American government under Roosevelt, which was granted in November of 1933. Perhaps we may claim that Russian media trolls got Roosevelt elected in the first place. But the Jewish Warburg family had as prominent members, bankers in Germany as well as in America, who were influential in both finance and in government in both countries, through both of the World Wars and the Depression. How can we ever imagine that there was not any great collusion between them, as well as with their fellow Jews? We have already discussed that subject in part 25 of this series, which was subtitled The Jewish International Bankers and the Evils of Global Capitalism. Continuing again with Mr. Homer, under the subtitle The Bolshevik Government in Russia is in actuality a Jewish government. The Soviet movement was a Jewish not and not a Russian conception. It was forced on Russia from without, when in 1917 German and German-American Jewish interests sent Lenin and his associates into Russia, 
furnished with the wherewithal to bring about the defection of the Russian armies and the overthrow of the Kerensky provisional government, which was pro-allies. Thus, and he gives another short list of four arguments here, the movement has never been controlled by Russians. For of the 224 revolutionaries who in 1917 were dispatched to Russia with Lenin to foment the Bolshevik Revolution, 170 were Jews. And as we demonstrated last week, it was pretty much concealed and argued until rather recently that Lenin was not a Jew. And when the Russian archives were opened to the general public, of course it is now proven beyond doubt and conceded even by leftist publications here in America that Lenin is a Jew. And he certainly was. And secondly, according to the Times of March 29, 1919, of the 20, and again this is the Times of London, of the 20 or 30 commissaries or leaders who provide the central machinery of the Bolshevist movement, not less than 75% are Jews. Among the minor officials, the number is legion. According to official information from Russia in 1920, out of 545 members of the Bolshevist administration, 447 were Jews. His second argument, the benefits of office under the Bolshevik regime have been reaped by Jews. The number of official appointments that have been bestowed upon Jews during the Soviet regime is entirely out of proportion to their percentage in the state, meaning within the Soviet Union. The population of Soviet Russia is officially given as 158,400,000. The Jewish section, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, being about 7,800,000, or about 5%. Yet, according to the Jewish Chronicle of January 6, 1933, over one-third of the Jews in Russia have become officials. Officials working for the government. Note that this does not say one-third of the officials are Jews, but it says one-third of the Jews are officials. Now, if half the Jews are women, who would not really be expected to be working in government even by Jews at that time, and if children were not counted, then we may assume that two-thirds of the Jewish men in Russia had become officials. Once it is realized that few Jews have any other purpose than to be parasites, the claim is not incredible. Again, continuing with Mr. Homer and his third argument, anti-Semitism in Russia is now classed as counter-revolutionary and is punishable by death. And finally, 
It is significant that the red five-pointed star, which in former times was the symbol of Zionism and Jewry, is now the symbol of the Russian proletariat. An oft-repeated internet meme states that to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. And while it is usually misattributed, it is nonetheless true. On another note, we do have at our MindConf project documentation, first-hand documentation from Ukraine that during the years from 1918 to 1941, 1942, I believe, before the German attack, Operation Barbarossa, and the German conquest of the Ukraine, during the years until the German conquest of the Ukraine, the Russians, the Bolsheviks, <coughs> the Soviets, I'm sorry, had closed the churches, turned them into movie theaters and warehouses, and left the synagogues open. But when the National Socialist Germans came and conquered the Ukraine from the Soviets, the synagogues were closed and the churches were open. And of course, once Germany lost the war, that situation was again reversed for quite some time. It was a long time before the Soviets allowed churches to function in communist Russia. And eventually they did, but by then Christianity in Russia had been so propagandized and the clerics so much in the pockets of the government that it really didn't matter any longer whether or not the Christian churches operated. Homer continues under the subtitle, Bolshevism, Judaism, and Christianity. Bolshevism was enforced in Russia by means of confiscation, terrorism, and murder on a scale of unprecedented magnitude. According to Bolshevist figures and other estimates in the revolution, some 20 million lost their lives, either by violence or from starvation and disease. Of these people, some 1,766,118 persons had been executed before February 1922. Bear in mind that while there were Bolshevik-enforced famines in the Ukraine in 1921 and 1922, they extended even beyond that time, and neither do these figures count the later Soviet terror famines, called the Holodomor, which were imposed upon the Ukraine in the early 1930s, and in which millions of people died. Continuing with Mr. Homer, the terror has become a permanent institution by which the Bolshevik Jewish government maintains its tyrannical power over the enslaved millions of Russia and pursues its war on religion. These statements may come as a shock to many readers, both Christian and Orthodox Jew, who may have condemned the activities and actions of the Bolsheviks without realizing where the true responsibility lay 
They will be further disturbed to read from the Jewish Chronicle of April 4th, 1919, that there is much in the fact of Bolshevism itself, in the fact that so many Jews are Bolshevists, in the fact that the ideals of Bolshevism at many points are consonant with the finest ideals of Judaism. This page from the Jewish Chronicle of April 4th, 1919 is available in facsimile at archive.org. The words appeared in an article on page 7 titled Peace, War, and Bolshevism. We have a copy of that we will provide with this presentation when it's published at Christagenia. Homer continues with another citation which has been cited in many books and articles available on the internet from the Jewish World, evidently a Jewish publication, of March 15, 1923. Fundamentally, Judaism is anti-Christian. Well, we know that. Too bad most Christians don't know it. An expression of opinion which is by no means new to the Jewish world. For in its issue of February 9, 1883, there appeared the following. The great ideal of Judaism is that the whole world shall be imbued with Jewish teachings and that in a universal brotherhood of nations, a greater Judaism, in fact, all the separate races and religions shall disappear. So here we see an open profession by Jews in 1883 of some of the long-term objectives which are also expressed in the Protocols and which today are enforced by every government and government-approved institution throughout the nations of Christendom. Homer continues with another citation from a source which we have seen often and have also presented here in the past. Bernard Lazar, a Jew, in his book, and this is the French title, Les Antisemitisme, the anti-Semitism, or just anti-Semitism, I gather, asserts, on page 350, the Jew is not, and of course the original was in French, so this is a translation, the Jew is not satisfied with de-Christianizing. He Judaizes. He destroys Catholic or Protestant faith. He provokes indifference, but he imposes his idea of the world, of morals, and of life upon those whose faith he ruins. He works at his age-old task, the annihilation of the religion of Christ. The wholesale persecution, torture, and murder of Christians by Bolsheviks in Russia and elsewhere would therefore appear to be the logical and practical application of the above ideals as foretold by Wilhelm Marr in 1879 and by 
Dostoevsky in 1880. Lazar's book was published in 1894. Wilhelm Marr was a German journalist who in 1879 had written a book titled The Victory of Judaism Over Germanism. He saw the writing on a wall. We presented Mars's book here in three segments, in three podcasts, in November of 2010. Marr was not a Jew, but a German journalist who, to a great extent, had realized how the Jews had come to dominate the Germany of his time. Continuing with Homer, he now makes what we could we would consider to be a rather naive statement. He says many Jews deplore the participation of members of their race, even though they may be professed atheists, in the unbridled acts of destruction, cruelty, and devilry which characterize Bolshevist tyranny. Here we have the problem of imagining that somehow there can be a good Jew. First, Christians should know from the Gospel of Christ and the Epistles of the Apostles that no Jew can ever imagine be imagined to be good, and that no Jew should ever be accepted by a Christian. But even in the conduct of their presence among us, Christians should understand the dangers of admitting Jews into the body politic. They naturally support all sorts of deviancy, they proclaim the artificial virtues of libertarianism in order to justify their deviancy, and they undermine society as a whole in order to advance the objectives of their deviancy. Jews are behind the promotion of every vice and every perversion imaginable throughout all of Western history, and it is what they do naturally. Christendom cannot have moral, economic, social, and political stability as long as it has Jews. Again continuing with Mr. Homer. In an attempt to explain away the fact that Jews play or played leading parts in the perpetration of the hideous crimes of the Bolshevik terror, Alfred Nasig, one of the spiritual leaders of Zionism, states... It should be one of the demonic leaders of of Judaism states socialism and the Mosaic code of course the Jew is lying are not at all in opposition all Jewish groups have a vital interest in the victory of socialism they must exact it not only on principle not only because of its identity with the Mosaic doctrine but also on tactical grounds. The Jewish socialist is reproached with playing a leading part in the communist terrorist party. This is only explained by two reasons. The complete estrangement of the Jewish terrorists from the spirit of the Mosaic doctrine and the strong mixture of Tatar and Cossack blood. That has inculcated in them savage and cruel principles.
so he's saying that he's admitting that the Jewish socialist takes a leading part in the communist terrorist party but then he claims that the Jewish socialist is reproached by playing that leading part now Homer makes a rather parenthetical remark which we will have to address the reader may not be aware that the Eastern European Jew known as the Ashkenazim or German Jew is of Jewish Mongolian Turkish extraction the Western European Jew known as the Sephardim or Portuguese Jew is regarded as purely Jewish in origin and this typical Jewish explanation of the difference between a Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jew is also a deception and they purposely obfuscate their own history to their advantage the Sephardic Jew is just as mingled with Arab and Negro as the Ashkenazi Jew is mixed with Turk and Mongol and in any case the most important distinction is that no Jew is a pure Israelite or Judahite in the first place the Jews descended from first-century Judeans who were rejected by Christ and his Apostles because they themselves were actually Edomites and Canaanites and any Judahites among them were bastards that resulted from the mixed-race marriages of the many Judahites with the Edomites and other Canaanites in Roman times Christ clearly rejected the Jews and spoke in parables so that they would not understand him long before the Jews rejected Christ all of this is recorded all of this background on the Jews is recorded in the histories of Flavius Josephus and Strabo of Cappadocia and it is also explained in the New Testament so even the so-called pure Jew can be no more than a cursed bastard Homer continues under the subtitle the alliance between international finance and its protégés Bolshevism and Zionism the European war and its aftermath dealt staggering blows to Western Christian civilization by contrast however international Jewry has emerged therefrom with enhanced financial and political power in all parts of the world through the use of the money power international Jew finance is now able to direct the internal and external policies of the governments of the impoverished the impoverished states of Europe and also of America by this power it has forced Gentile governments to further the political aspirations of Zionism and to refrain from protecting the interests of their own nationals from the activities of Bolshevists who are undermining the economic social moral and religious systems of all states
again, this author is vindicated by the history of the last 85 years. International finance is not altruistic. It ever seeks its own material advancement and power. Europe is exhausted as a profitable investment. But Russia, Siberia, the Far East, India, the Middle East are awaiting exploitation and would offer colossal gains to those who could superimpose upon them the mass production methods of modern machinery. And this is precisely what happened in the years which followed the publication of this booklet. And the Second World War only exacerbated the situation. Homer continues, Bolshevism has opened the way to a Jewish industrialization of Russia and Siberia. It may deliver India and the Far East into the hands of international Jew finance. Its part is to foster world revolution and the destruction of religion so that the present social systems may be swept away as in Russia. And while we shall not take the time to document it here presently, China was purposely delivered to communism by the American government soon after the Second World War. The Roosevelt and Truman administrations were both complicit in the victory of communism in China, and of course since then, China and much of the Far East has indeed been industrialized just as our author says that it will be industrialized. Today, and, and call centers, but not industry, have been moved to India because those people, they can't do anything right. Today, and for the last several decades, the destruction of religion is fully evident in the spread of so-called pop culture, which is really the imposition of Jewish cultural values throughout the world. Pop culture is Jewish culture. Wherever we see industrialization, the growth of pop culture and the loss of traditional morality follows almost immediately. Returning to Homer, International finance, after great success of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, which Zionists had aided, realized that it stood greatly to gain by supporting the Zionist movement, by forcing the Balfour Declaration on a financially harassed British government, and thereby consolidating world Jewry into a political, powerful political factor for use in their own interests in world affairs. These Zionists themselves in 1928 realized that their movement had been exploited by international finance, and in 1929 did not hesitate to say so. For, as the dictates of powerful Jew financiers, the Zionist organization as the official liaison between world Jewry and the mandatory power for Palestine was superseded by the Jewish Agency, a body containing powerful non-Zionist elements. International finance, by its support of Zionism, has obtained the power to exploit the vast resources of oil, chemicals, 
and other substances in the lands to which Palestine is the outlet. By the same means, it is dumped into Palestine, the most sacred country in the world, according to our author. Thousands of Bolshevik Jews, who would destroy all religions, and who, from this strategic center, are engaged in propaganda designed to draw Palestine, Egypt, the Middle East, India, and the Far East into the gigantic movement begun in Russia and to destroy British imperialism. And that's citing a name, Vide Eberlin, which is rather obscure, although this passage is found elsewhere in books and articles available on the Internet. Returning to Homer, the part played by international finance in furthering Bolshevism is a source of bewilderment to those who do not understand that the money power, Zionism, and Bolshevism are but weapons in the hands of international Jewry. On the face of it, astute Jew financiers, with their knowledge of mankind, would not be so stupid or so insane as to pour vast amounts of capital into the worldwide activities of Bolshevism unless they were certain in their own mind that their own interests and power were secure whatever happened to the rest of humanity. The alliance between Jewish finance and revolutionary movements was no mystery to Disraeli who he calls in parentheses Lord Beaconsfield by his formal British political name, for just after the European revolutionary upheaval of 1848, he wrote, quoting Disraeli, in his book The Life of Lord George Bent Bentinck, on page 497, the influence of the Jews may be traced in the last outbreak of the destructive principle in Europe. An insurrection takes place against tradition and aristocracy, against religion and property, destruction of the Semitic principle, extirpation of the Jewish religion, whether in the Mosaic or the Christian form. Now this is the Jew Disraeli making this claim, and we know he's lying. The natural equality of man and the abrogation of property are proclaimed by the secret societies who form provisional governments and men of Jewish race are found at the head of every one of them. The people of God, rather the people of Satan, cooperate with atheists, the most skillful accumulators of property, ally themselves with communists. The peculiar and chosen race touch the hand of all the scum and low castes of Europe, and all this because they wish to destroy that ungrateful Christian Christendom which owes to them even its name, and whose tyranny they can no longer endure. Now Disraeli, a Jew, purposely lies and perpetuates the confusion between Judah, Jew, and Judean, which is the problem with truth-telling Jews. They always lie about things which are far more important to their own well-being. They tell you a little truth and they maintain great
big lies. Similar statements, Homer says, have been made by many other writers of eminence and erudition. Not quite eruditum enough. History shows that the Jew has always been by nature a revolutionary and that since the dispersion of his race in the second century he has either initiated or assisted revolutionary movements in religion, politics, and finance which weakened the power of the states wherein he dwelt. On the other hand, a few far-seeing members of the race have always been at hand to reap financial and political advantage coinciding with such upheavals. Now while Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the actual diaspora of the Jews did not take place for many decades later. First there was the Quito's War of 115 to 117 AD and then the later Bar Kokhba Revolt of 132 to 135 AD. In contrast, the Apostle James wrote his epistle to the twelve tribes spread abroad before 62 AD and none of them were ever called Jews. Paul also distinguished between the twelve tribes and the Jews in Acts chapter 26 and explained that the twelve tribes were off in distant lands. To confuse Israelites and Jews, one must be absolutely ignorant of ancient and biblical history as well as the Gospel of Christ. Returning to Homer, in the present case, however, world Jewry may have let loose a force of destruction which international finance may find itself powerless to control. In fact, another Frankenstein monster. His conclusion on Bolshevism. He then asks, and we take issue with this as well, he then asks under the subtitle, is the whole Jewish race to be condemned? Dr. Oscar Levy, a Jew, in 1920, in a letter which has been printed as a preface to a book, The World Significance of the Russian Revolution, by G. Pitt Rivers, attributes the fact that Jewish elements provide the driving force for both communism and capitalism for the material as well as the spiritual ruin of this world to the intense ideal idealism of the Jew. However, as he points out, all Jews are not financiers, Zionists, or Bolshevists. Here we have another so-called truth-telling Jew, who in turn upholds even greater lies. G. Pitt Rivers, the author of that booklet, The World Significance of the Russian Revolution, G. Pitt Rivers, who admired the Jew Oscar Levy to the extent of including his letter, his admissive letter, in his book, had also rejected Christianity as being Jewish. So he himself became the victim of the Jew which he admired. 
so long as truth seekers that's what I believe that Mr. Homer and even Mr. Rivers are so long as truth, truth seekers accept these admissions from Jews they will remain blind because they get a little bit of truth and a lot of lies and the lies are repelled and the lies are much more damaging to Christendom than the knowledge of these little bits of truth that we could easily get from other places that we don't need Jews to discover we have a facsimile of that book but we do not have it publicly available online for these reasons and others all Jews are anti-Christian all Jews lie about the Christian scriptures or at least perpetuate age-old Jewish lies and uphold at least a part of the anti-Christian and anti-European Jewish agenda again returning to Homer Dr. Levy considers that the Jews have most grievously erred in saying we who have promised to lead you to a new heaven we have finally succeeded in landing you into a new hell I look at this world and I shudder at its ghastliness I shudder all the more as I know the spiritual authors of all this ghastliness but its authors themselves are unconscious in this as in all they are doing Levy making an excuse for his fellow Jews we must interject here once more we do not need a Jew to inform us of the treachery of Jews and we do not need a Jew to know that the Jews are only blind leaders of the blind and that whenever whites have followed a Jew all of them have fallen into a pit Homer continues it may be true that the fanatics who have committed the many are only too well authenticated and only too well authenticated acts of destruction and devilry are not fully aware of all that they are doing for Bolshevism is but one of the several weapons employed by a very small and powerful group of men who lust for world domination to whose prototypes Christ pronounced the following indictment ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father you will do he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him when he speaks a lie he speaks of his own for he is a liar and the father of it citing Homer Mr. Homer citing John 844 and continuing to say and whose existence in reference to this small and powerful group of Jews and whose existence in these days has been referred to by Jews of such eminence in politics and finance as Benjamin Disraeli and Walter Rathenau this small group of men Jews has long exercised a hidden dictatorship over the affairs of Europe America and to some extent in Asia by means of the enslavement of national governments to what Herzl the first leader of the Zionist organization called our terrible power of the purse 
This method of control could not be applied to Tsarist Russia. Therefore, the end was achieved by means of Bolshevism, a method which is also being used to bring the East into subjection to them. We mention these Jews, Disraeli and Rathenau, together in the Protocols of Satan, Part 25, which was the Jewish international bankers and the evils of global capitalism, and Rathenau again in Part 27, the Nazis and the Protocols. Regardless of what they wrote in their books, and especially in works of fiction, which is what Disraeli had wrote, Disraeli and Rathenau, who were both prominent politicians in England and Germany, were also part and parcel of the Jewish dominance in Western governments. Both were financed and supported by Jewish bankers and merchants of their time, and both advanced in the overall Jewish cause, they both advanced the overall Jewish cause and subjection of Christendom by Jewish finance. By Christians, Disraeli and Rathenau, and even Dr. Levy, should be looked upon no differently from a Rothschild, a Warburg, a Schiff, a Marshall, an Unermeyer, or a Balfour. Where they tell the truth, they have a greater motivation to perpetuate bigger lies, and they too are the children of those to whom Christ had said, Ye are of your father the devil so long as truth seekers follow Jews they're going to remain at least half blind continuing once again with Homer the machinations of this group of men have been crowned with so great a measure of success that members of their race have had the effrontery in their recent representation of Britannia to attach the seal of Solomon to her shield and the Judaistic symbol of the serpent around her trident. And the descendants of those who rejected Christ have not only joined hands with Antichrist, but also with those who would expel God from his universe and set up in his place gold and the machine as symbols of their gross materialism. Actually, according to scripture, all Jews are Antichrists. I do not understand how any Christian misses the explicit statements in that regard which are found in the epistles of John. Homer concludes, unless the power of this section of Jewry <coughs> is checked by human or superhuman, or superhuman means, the peoples of the world, whether Gentile or Jew, are doomed to slavery of body and soul. The Jewish nature, excuse me, the Jewish nature of Bolshevism probably took a few years even for the most, even for most of the observers of Judaism who ever realized it to fully comprehend. Although discussing this subject in our last presentation of the series, inciting class warfare. From Russian number one, report number six, we presented the testimony of the Netherlands minister, Udendijk, 
who had said that Bolshevism is organized and worked by Jews who have no nationality and whose one object is to destroy for their own ends the existing order of things. There are a few other similar references to Jews in Russia number one. The same is characteristic of early of some of the early American reports on the nature of the Bolsheviks and communism. At the Mein Kampf project at Christiania, we had published a document titled Memorandum on Certain Aspects of the Bolshevist Movement in Russia, a U.S. government report from 1919. This document was never published on the internet until we were able to publish it in December of 2011, thanks to Mr. Gerald Mosley. In this official United States government report on Bolshevism, there are only two references to Jews, both of which are in Appendix 12, which is a report of an American representative from Finland dated June 25, 1919. And here we are going to present that report. The fall of Bolshevism, which seemed inevitable even two months ago, has created the wildest terrorism. Actually, a lot of the authors of the reports in Russia number one in 1918 and early 1919 also expected Bolshevism to fall, and it never did. It just got more and more extreme and more and more violent until it succeeded. And of course, they must have had practically unlimited resources, and those resources must have been made available to them from the West to a great extent, and they certainly were. The fall of Bolshevism, <coughs> which seemed inevitable even two months ago, has created the wildest terrorism. People are executed without trial in masses on mere suspicion of sympathy with the Soviet's enemies. Agitation is growing abroad, created chiefly by Russian Jews and others who are interested in a prolongation of the Bolshevist regime against the aims of Generals Kolchak, Yadunik, and Denikin, the White Army, the good guys, who are denounced as representing the supporters of Tsarism. The attempt is also made to convince foreigners that improvements are going on in Soviet Russia with an ardor which would seem to indicate the hopelessness of the situation. <coughs> Some American journalists, received and well-treated by the Bolsheviks, also have reported favorably. The Russians who are opposed to the Soviet government naturally believe these to be bribed. I think this is unlikely. I have seen a number of them, and this is, of course, the words of the ambassador of the diplomat in Finland, the American representative, I should call him, in Finland. I think this is unlikely. I have seen a number of them, and it is my belief that their conclusions are due rather to prepossessed ideas and to ignorance of real conditions 
and unfamiliarity with the language. It is my own strong conviction that even the dark elements are by now disillusioned. The bulk of the workmen and the peasants, to whom so much has been promised, are disgusted. The increasing support which the Bolsheviks found in 1917 has gradually disappeared. Reliable opinion counts not more than 160,000 communists by conviction, and these are mostly young workmen. Terror and necessity compel work for the Soviet government, and 160,000 would be one-tenth of one percent of the population. Terror and necessity compel work for the Soviet government, but this work is much encumbered by theory, inexperience, and corruption. The continued existence of Soviet Russia is largely due to enormous stocks accumulated during the war. Even now, colossal quantities of cotton goods exist, which they do not know how to distribute. This inability to produce any practical achievements has resulted politically in an outspoken change. The idea of a great Russian Republic has faded, and the general wish is rather for a strong constitutional monarchy. The peasants I have recently seen deny emphatically the existence of support for the Bolsheviks in the villages, stating that the few communists to be found in some villages are known to be loafers. It is my opinion that not one percent of Soviet Russia's population will be against intervention from whichever side it may come. Kolchak or any other power will be welcomed. There will be a slaughtering of Bolsheviks as soon as the deliverers are near the centers and red terror ceases to be feared. But terror, hunger, and disease have temporarily created apathy. Finland loathes Bolshevism, fears a czarist government, but wishes to be on good terms with a new strong Russia. I believe the same applies to the Baltic provinces. As to the Tatars of Siberia and Kazan, I have not the slightest doubt that these, about 16 million Mohammedans, will be as a whole side with Kolchak against the Bolsheviks. This is confirmed by their representative, Mr. S. Maksudov, now in Paris, who personally gave me his report of March 25th, which was cabled in full to Paris. Many Russian Jews have, by their activity with the Bolsheviks, strongly compromised that section of the population, and pogroms of great magnitude, I fear, a backlash against the Jews, right, are to be anticipated. The strength of the Bolsheviks lies in their organization. Terror combined with most elaborate espionage at home and propaganda in and behind the ranks of the enemy make them still a formidable force. This is the only report collected in this document which explicitly mentions Jews. However, it nevertheless complements the several British reports in Russia No. 1, which also mention the Jews behind Bolshevism. This report is also valuable because it elucidates the naivety of American journalists, whether or not it is purposeful.
who returned to the United States to trumpet the new Soviet Union as a workman's paradise, while the real workmen were starving to death back in Russia. And while this particular American who made this report was evidently not quite as aware of the Jewish nature of Bolshevism as was his Dutch counterpart Udendijk, he, he was nevertheless observant enough and candid enough to provide us with this second historical witness to the fact as well as providing us with valuable testimony in other areas. There are, however, other references to the Jewish nature of Bolshevism in the Russian number one report. For instance, in report number two, which was filed from Stockholm on August 18, 1918, by Sir Esme Howard, stated in part that on August 7th, I called at temporary prison and saw Greenep, Wishaw, and Jerem evidently ranking diplomats. They are all well treated by their guards who are real Russians, unlike most of their leaders, who are either fanatics or Jewish adventurers like Trotsky or Radek. In report number 15, which is a memorandum on conditions in Moscow by a British subject who left Moscow on December 1st, we read in part the economic and social conditions in Moscow are in a state of chaos. All trade and commerce, except illicit trading, which is still carried on by the Jews, is at a complete standstill. The shops, even the smallest, are either closed or on the point of being closed and all the places of business also. Another report, so the Jews were able to conduct black market trade when nobody else could conduct trade at all. Another report, report number 26, was sent by telegraph from Vladivostok, Siberia, to Earl George Curzon from Mr. Alston, on January 23, 1919. This Mr. Alston, a foreign civil servant, was evidently knighted later on, and he is known as Sir Beale B. Francis Alston. In this report he said, in part, the Bolsheviks can no longer be described as a political party holding the extreme communistic view. They form relatively a relatively small privileged class which is able to terrorize the rest of the population because it has a monopoly both of arms and of food supplies. This class consists chiefly of workmen and soldiers and include a large non-Russian element such as Letts, Estonians and Jews. The latter are especially numerous in higher posts. Members of this class are allowed complete license and commit crimes against one another, against other sections of society. I'm sorry. The Letts and Estonians, as we have found in other sections of 
Russia number one, were only brought in as mercenaries for the Jews, along with many Chinese, because the Jews knew that they would be the most hostile to native Russians. Later on, in report number 33, filed on February 8, 1919, from Vladivostok, Alston wrote in part of a report that he had turned in turn received on the 6th from Ekaterinburg and said from ex- examination of several labor and peasant witnesses laborer and peasant witnesses I have evidence to the effect that the very smallest percentage of this district were pro-Bolshevik the majority of laborers sympathizing with summoning of with the summoning of a constituent assembly witnesses further stated that bolshevik leaders did not represent russian working classes most of them being jews now in report number 32 filed by lord kilmarnock to earl curzon from copenhagen on february 3rd 1919 we read in part the Bolsheviks comprised chiefly Jews and Germans who were exceedingly active and enterprising. The Russians were largely anti-Bolshevik but were for the most part dreamers incapable of any sustained action who now more than ever before were unable to throw off the yoke of their oppressors. Night after night the counter-revolutionary societies held secret meetings to plot against the Bolsheviks, but never once was a serious attempt made to carry through the conspiracy. The starving condition of the people quite paralyzed their willpower. Now we would propose that perhaps Kilmarnock only thought that the Bolsheviks were comprised chiefly of Jews and Germans, because many of the Jewish Bolsheviks changed their names to German-sounding names so as to disguise their true origin and identity. This practice by the Bolsheviks of using German or Russian pseudonyms is well recorded in many sources on the revolution. Here we are going to read one more report from Russian number one. This is report number 56 filed by the Reverend B.S. Lombard, a British chaplain at Petrograd, to Earl George Curzon on March 23, 1919. It offers another witness to the Jewish nature of Bolshevism, but it also offers a second witness to some of the things which we offered in our last presentation concerning the aims of the Communist Manifesto regarding women and how the Bolsheviks carried out those same objectives in practice. So we read, My Lord, this is from the Reverend Lombard, the British chaplain, I beg to forward to your Lordship the following details with reference to Bolshevism in Russia. I have been in Russia for ten years, and have been in Petrograd through the whole of the revolution. 
I spent six weeks in the fortress of Peter and Paul, acted as chaplain to His Majesty's submarines in the Baltic for four years, and was in contact with the Ninth Russian Army in Romania during the autumn of 1917 while visiting British missions and hospitals and had ample opportunity of studying Bolshevik methods. It originated in German propaganda and was and is being carried out by international Jews. The Germans initiated disturbances in order to reduce Russia to chaos. They printed masses of paper money to finance their schemes. The notes of which I possess specimens can easily be recognized by a special mark. Again, we would think that many, at least, of these so-called Germans were actually also Jews. However, we must also consider that Germany was at war with Russia at this time and would naturally use any means possible to win, including collusion with Jews. We would also go so far as to state that the real purpose for the Jewish incitement of the Great War was to deliver Germany, Russia, and the rest of the world to Jewish control. Continuing with our source, continuing with Reverend Lombard's report, their tenets radically to destroy all ideas of patriotism and nationality by preaching the doctrine of internationalism, we are the world, which proved successful amongst the uncultured masses of the laboring classes, to obstruct every means, by every means, the creation of military power by preaching the ideas of peace, and to foster the abolition of military discipline, to keep the masses under the hypnosis of false socialistic literature, to buy up all nationalized banks, and to open up everywhere branches of German government banks under the names and titles of firms that would conceal their actual standing. Now, our writer is a clergyman and an Englishman. It would probably have been difficult to convince him that it was actually the presumably English and American bankers who were the real culprits, all of them also being Jewish. So again, continuing with our source, he says, to endeavor to impoverish and temporarily, or temporally, I'm sorry, to weaken the peasant classes, to bring about national calamities such as epidemics. The outbreak of cholera last summer was traced to this source. The wholesale burning down of villages and set settlements to preach the doctrine of the socialistic form or managing enterprises amongst the working classes to encourage their efforts to seize such enterprises and then by means of bankruptcies to get them into German hands or rather into Jewish hands to preach the idea of a six to eight hours working day with higher wages, to crush all competition set on foot against them, all attempts of the intellectuals or other groups to undertake any kind of independent action or to develop any industries 
is to be unmercifully checked and in doing this to stop at nothing. Russia is to be inundated by commission agents and other German representatives and a close network of agencies and offices should be created for the purpose of spreading amongst the masses such views and teachings as at any time, any given time, may be dictated from Berlin. Now, of course, the result was that Russia was inundated with solely Jewish agents, never German ones. And Germany itself ended up resisting communism for the next 20 years but was then destroyed in the next war. Our source continues. In other words, it was Jewish all along. It was never German. Our source continues and says the results the results of Bolshevism, 1919. All business became paralyzed. Shops were closed. Jews became possessors of most of the business houses. He didn't say Germans there. He said Jews. And horrible scenes of starvation became common in the country districts. The peasants put their children to death rather than see them starve. In a village on the Divina, not far from Schlusselberg, a mother hanged three of her children. I was conducting a funeral in a mortuary of a lunatic asylum at Udilnaya near Petrograd and saw the bodies of a mother and her five children whose throats had been cut by the father because she could not see them suffer. He could not see them suffer, I'm sorry. When I left Russia last October and this um, corroborates what we found from other reports in Russia number one and the plans laid out in the Communist Manifesto even though this is a brief witness. When I left Russia last October, the nationalization of women was regarded as an accomplished fact, though I cannot prove that, with the exception of at Saratov, one particular town, there was any actual proclamation issued. In other words, it's the policy, but he didn't have a copy of a proclamation. The cruelty of the soldiers is unspeakable. The father of one of the Russian clerks in the Vauxhall Motor Works was bound and laid on a railway line and cut to pieces by a locomotive on suspicion of having set fire to some of his own property. In August last, two barge loads of Russian officers were sunk and their bodies washed up on the property of a friend of mine in the Gulf of Finland. Many lashed together in twos and threes with barbed wire. While we were in prison, a red guard was sent from the central police station, Gorokavia II, in charge of five prisoners to the, to the fortress. One of them, an old officer, was unable to walk. The guard shot him and left his body on the Troitsky Bridge. The murderer was reprimanded and imprisoned in a cell near ours. The treatment of priests was brutal beyond everything. Eight of them were incarcerated in a cell in our corridor.
Some of us saw an aged man knocked down twice one morning for apparently no reason whatever, and they were employed to perform the most degrading work and made to clean out the filthy prison hospital. Recently, life in Petrograd has become a veritable nightmare. No indication that rabbis were imprisoned. In the early days of 1917, the Russians gloried in a bloodless revolution. Now they simply glut themselves with killing for the most trivial offenses. In a market on the opposite side of the river by my, to my house, a poor woman with a starving family filched a piece of small, of small piece of meat from a stall. Without any hesitation, the Red Guards surrounded her and, placing her against a wall, shot her dead. The rank and file of the Red Army is full of men who are heartily sick of the present regime and would gladly join any really strong force sent to the relief of the country. But unless the force were considerable, they would hesitate. But I imagine that the food question is the key to the situation, just like the cops work for here in America. The Red Armies must be at a low ebb for provisions, and by getting stores to Helsingfors they might be treated with. And that's the end of the report by Boosfield S. Lombard chaplain to the forces. This concludes our attempt to sufficiently document from sources rather contemporary to the Bolshevik Revolution the entirely Jewish nature and substance of Bolshevism and the Bolsheviks. There are many more proofs which we have in this regard. However, those which we have offered thus far should be more than sufficient to establish the truth of our assertions. Once the Bolsheviks are wholly identified with Jews, we can see that the protocols written by the Jews were fulfilled in Russia by the Bolsheviks. And the dots should all be connected. When we return, we will discuss the very next boast found in Protocol Number 3, that the Jews would throw great crowds of workmen into the street simultaneously in all countries of Europe. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. Shining bright with unspilled tears Thinking about all those wasted years When everything worth living for is gone Brother, I find it hard to keep fighting on Yeah.
This is the way it ends I can't bear